when you go to seminary and, and then plug yourself into youth ministry, and the reason why I've stayed in youth ministry for all these 20-some-odd years now, uh, is because of the questions. I just haven't gotten bored with the questions I get asked. And there are questions that typically when you get to a certain age, you start to take for granted. But when you really press through them again in a fresh way, the way in which only a college student can ask you, sometimes trying to answer it can be really difficult. My, my favorite example happened years ago when I was at the University of Memphis as a campus minister where I was sitting across the, the uh, table from a young man who was really involved in our group um, for a while, but had dropped off for a semester. This happens. Students sort of wander in and out. And I sat across the table from him, and you got to realize he was a young man who could easily have been a member of this church. He, he, he had grew up in the faith. He had actually attended uh, a, a private Christian academy, um, had very uh, faithful, devout parents. And yet he had come to college and found what a lot of college students find, a fresh sort of experience of temptation. Had, he had started to wander. He started, he started making decisions in college that... A lot of us made when we were in college that we don't want to talk about anymore and try to avoid anyone realizing. He was in rebellion against God. But here's the thing. He, he didn't like that he was in rebellion against God. And so here I am, fresh out of seminary. I'm just, you know, loaded with learning, right? Um, so I lay on him, I'm sure, one of the worst just, you know, uh, jargon-laden speeches you could possibly give to a student. And just kind of set it in front of him as if it was supposed to cure all the things. And, and the young man was really nice. He sort of nodded and hmm, smiled very graciously. And he got to the end of it and he was like, Les, I really appreciate all that. He goes, you have to understand that I know every single bit of that. He goes, truthfully, I could have given you the information back to you as well as you just gave it to me. He said, that's not my problem. He said, my problem is I know the information but I don't know how to, and this is what he did. He started pointing here. He goes, I don't know how to get it here. In other words, I don't know that I'm really like owning it. And then he said this, and this was the, this was the, this was the poetry that moved me. He said, I don't think I understand what it means to believe anymore. Because I know that this information is supposed to transform me, it's supposed to move me, it's supposed to register with me in all these different ways, but it doesn't. I don't know how to believe. Now, let's play a game. Let's play a game this weekend called You Be the Campus Minister. <laughs> I want you to try to answer the question, what is faith? If someone were to ask you that question. Now, but here's the only rule of the game, okay? You're not allowed to answer the question what faith is with a definition that includes the word faith. That, that's the trick. Because what I get from people all the time is, well, oh, faithless, here we go. We're going to talk about, you're going to start splitting hairs over things that theologians like to argue about. Faith is simple. Faith is just, you know, it, it trust. Faith means to trust. Really? Well, the word trust comes from the word fiducia, which comes from the Latin word fide, which is the word faith. <laughs> you can't say, well, you know what faith is. Faith just means having faith. No. I want you to tell me what it means to believe. What does it mean to believe? I want this weekend to ask 
five texts of Scripture, what do we mean when we say we believe? And, and, I, and I want you to know that it's okay for you now to be thinking to yourself, oh, wow, thank goodness I don't have to come back to any of the conferences' sessions because I already know the answer to all these questions. Ah, stick with me for a bit and see if you won't discover with me that grappling with the true nature of what the Bible says about believing can transform everything. And a lot of the spiritual struggles with which we uh, universally wrestle can really be answered in this question of what do I mean when I say that I believe in Jesus? That I believe the gospel? That I have faith in the scripture? What do I mean? I want to ask five texts of scripture that question, what is faith? And let's see what we can't draw out from it, uh, uh, from our text. Daniel chapter 3 is a fairly uh, familiar passage. You have three young Jewish men who have found themselves uh, in a bit of a predicament. They're in a foreign land. They are, they are exiles. And these three young men are standing before a pagan king who has issued a royal edict that when the musicians play throughout the city, everyone is to turn and bow down to a giant statue that Nebuchadnezzar has erected in his own honor. I don't know how you define megalomania. But he's erected it. Everyone's supposed to sort of bow down to this statue and worship it. Well... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are men of integrity, and they refuse to do as much. And so they get told on, and they find out what happens. And, of course, the king is none too happy. And then we begin the story in verse 19, shall we? Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of his mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods." This is our scripture reading for this evening. There's a sociologist at the University of California who back in the early 90s did a study on religious Bible-believing Christians, people that would actually leave their homes and come to church on a Friday night. In other words, us. And he was looking at the question of how they understood what it means to believe. And this guy, Wade Clark Roof was his name, R-O-O-F, just like a roof of a house, said that eight out of every ten conservative, Bible-believing Christians in America believes in what he refers to as possibility thinking. Possibility thinking. What is possibility thinking? Well, he went on to describe it as this sort of fundamental belief that one can do just about anything if he believes in himself. 
In other words, anything is open to you. Anything is possible if you just believe in yourself. I remember reading about that research when I was in seminary in the early 90s, and I have come to be convinced that that idea of possibility thinking is absolutely thick in our culture. And I felt like I was taught it from my very earliest of ages. I am a Star Wars kid. I mean, I grew up on Star Wars. I saw them in the theater, kids. You got to understand, and all the young kids are like, oh, you did? How old could you possibly be? But I remember sitting in the theater and being enamored with these characters, right? Not the least of which was the three-foot-tall Muppet Yoda. Didn't you love the character of Yoda who would spill his wisdom? In the second movie, The Empire Strikes Back, the young, dashing uh, Luke Skywalker has made, him, made his way back to go under the training and tutelage of the Jedi Master Yoda, crashing into his home planet and receiving his training. And Yoda's trying to coach him in the ways of the Force and how he can manipulate all kinds of objects. Even, he says, his crashed spaceship there in the swamp. And so Luke Skywalker walks over to the edge of the swamp and sort of holds his hand out and you know, sort of slowly starts to try to raise the spaceship up out of the swamp, but suddenly fails as it sinks further than it was before. And Luke looks and says, ah, it's absolutely impossible. And Yoda walks up and says, it's not impossible. It's just how well you understand the force. And he walks up to the edge, you know, kind of waddles up to it, holds out his, what, three fingers, you know. Out comes the spaceship from the swamp and sets itself lightly on the ground. And, of course, Luke walks up completely flabbergasted, walking along the sides of it to make sure that his eyes don't deceive him. And he looks and he goes, I don't believe it. Remember Yoda's answer? He says, and that is why you fail. Now, you may look and say, yes, Les, that's science fiction movies. Those are sort of those pagan kinds of things. Ah, you keep watching. We're getting ready to enter into what college students refer to as March Madness Season. Everyone's brackets will be filled out for them, and we'll have all of our say at seeing how college basketball lays out in front of us. I don't exactly know. I'll fill out a bracket, but I can't tell you who's going to win or who's going to place or who's going to make it to the Final Four. But I can almost guarantee you this. That after one game, there's going to be some team that beats a team that they weren't supposed to beat. And some interviewer is going to walk up to either the coach or one of the players and say to them, Wow, how did you do it? And when that microphone gets stuck in their face, that athlete's going to say something like this. You know something? From the very beginning of this game, we just never stopped believing that we could. Do you see how it comes out? I want to submit to you that our culture is full of this idea that the simple act of believing is what sort of causes things to happen in life. And the reason why you get good things in life is because you believed. And my premise to you tonight is this one thought. The church is just as infected with that kind of thinking as the world is. But I think that's a false way of looking at it. I want to submit to you this evening that faith is not somehow conjuring yourself up into a feeling state that when you achieve it will get God to do for you what you want Him to do. Rather, faith is simply faith in that what God says to do is true. 
And my exhibit A is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because in the passage right before what I just read, you have an amazing speech that these three men give to this king. For whom, as you well know by now, are in deep trouble. They have been told what they are to do. They've been commanded to bow down and worship this king. And they have been threatened with what we might refer to as deep discomfort for not obeying. Namely, a fiery furnace. And what do they do? This is what they say. Look back there in verse 18. Or actually, verse, uh, verse 16. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Now, you've got to admit, that's pretty inspiring, isn't it? You read verses like that, you can almost hear the music in the background starting. You know, dun, 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 dun. Here they are, you know, my God is able to sort of protect me. And you'd be tempted to read this story and say, that's how these men sort of made it through the fiery furnace, right? They just believed that God could save them, and he did. You could live with that if it weren't for verse 18. Notice what they say in the first couple words, the first three words. <laughs> But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, wait a minute. What do you mean, if he does not? Does that not strike you as a strange moment of weakness? That Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego admit at a certain moment that God, brace yourself, might not do for them what he certainly wants them to do for them. And we look at that and think, well, was that a moment of weakness? I think not. I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are a great example to us of what real biblical faith is. Because biblical faith is not getting God to do what you want Him to do, but it's believing in God and for His will. Because we make two mistakes, and these are really my own two main points that I want to make tonight. We, on the one hand, make a mistake that faith is really a struggle with quantity. That is, how much faith do you have? In the summer times, I get the privilege of being able to travel to um, a wonderful boys' camp, Alpine Camp for Boys, a place uh, from which I was employed when I was in seminary over in northeast Alabama. And as you sort of proceed up through DeSoto State Park, you will go by a church along the wayside that is uh, sort of well-known among the campers at uh, Alpine Camp for Boys as being the snake-handling church. I don't know how many of you ever read Salvation on Sand Mountain, but you do realize that there are churches that still indulge in this practice. And it's a pretty fascinating practice and makes for what I would consider to be some pretty interesting uh, Sunday morning services. That is, at the end of the sermon, the preaching, the musicians, they bring in a box of snakes poisonous snakes and the idea is that the faithful will come forward and begin to handle the snakes and by faith they will believe that they will not get bitten read salvation on sand this is happening tonight my guess is uh, at this stage there are still churches that are engaging that kind of thing I remember actually listening to a report on uh, the book salvation by sand mountain on NPR one particular weekend and the interviewer, in its so condescending NPR way, uh, sort of stuck a microphone in, in the mouth of one of these uh, parishioners and had said, you know, really, why do you do this? 
And I remember the interviewee saying, well, the truth is, if you get bit, that means there's something wrong. And I thought, you're right about that. There's something wrong. But do you see the idea? If I can well up enough faith in me, then I can keep things from happening like a snake biting me. But now we look at and we laugh at those kinds of questions, say, oh, less, that's among the poor, the uneducated. But do we not do the exact same thing when we caricature our relationship to God as if the goal of the Christian life is sort of pumping enough sort of faith nickels into the cosmic vending machine in the sky so that eventually he gives me what I want him to give me? I think most Christians have a view of faith that's the same as little Natalie Wood's faith from Miracle on 34th Street. I'm talking about the old version, the real Miracle on 34th Street, doggone it, the black and white version. (laughs) Do you remember the very last scene of Miracle on 34th Street where they're sort of roaming through the suburban city because the traffic is too bad downtown? And little Natalie Wood's faith is threatened, is it not? She's asked Santa Claus for an extraordinary present. A house. But she's in the back seat. Do you remember what she's saying with her little fist on her chin? She sits back there and she says, I believe, I believe. It's silly, but I believe. And all of a sudden what happens? They turn the corner and there's her house. Christians treat God in this exact same way. That if I can just purge my mind of any thought of doubt, then God will give me whatever I want. And he'll make my life easy. Isn't that what we think? So we sometimes think that faith is a matter of quantity. But secondly, some of us look and say, oh, Les, that's quaint. No, I don't believe that. The truth is you've got to make sure not that you're believing enough, but you've got to believe in the right things. In other words, faith is not a matter of quantity. It's really a matter of quality. That is, you've got to sort of uh, uh, believe in God's perfect will for your life, but you've got to figure out what that perfect will is first. I mean, the reason why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are passed through the fiery furnace is because God found the greatest of opportunities to sort of display the greatness of these zealots for the faith. How else would they go about being Old Testament heroes? You ever reasoned that way? When I was in seminary, there was a, a, a man who had uh, come to seminary the year after I got there. Uh, and he was an extraordinary man, very uh, faithful businessman, had actually been uh, an account executive at a Fortune 500 company prior to hearing and then responding to the Lord's call into the ministry. I mean, guy left everything, walked away from the house, the money, the everything to go to seminary to be trained for the pastoral ministry. While he was there, within maybe six months of his arrival, his wife was uh, diagnosed with cancer, a very aggressive, advanced form of cancer. And over the next six months, she declined very, very quickly in her health. And I remember distinctly the evening that we called a campus-wide prayer service to gather together and pray for this man's wife. One of the more extraordinary spiritual events that I've ever been a, been a part of. Uh, they brought Karen in at that moment, and she was very weak by that time. And they found a chair to sit her on in the center of the chapel, and we began to pray. Now, if I told you that I began to pray, that would not be very impressive. But the people that prayed are the people that I respect as much spiritually as I possibly could. I mean, my, my seminary professors, like 
theologians of extraordinary measure brought the house down in prayer. And I remember thinking to myself while sitting on the second or third row, why would God not answer this prayer? Is there any reason that God would not heal this woman's body? What a testimony it would be to this entire seminary, to this entire community, maybe even the entire state of Mississippi, to see God come and touch in a great moment of healing this woman. Three weeks later, Karen was dead. And I got to tell you, I suffered a crisis of faith because I had two thoughts. My first thought was, God, why would you let this happen? (laughs) Why in the world, God, would you allow something for the world to be watching Christians and to pray with all of the evangelical fervor that we can muster? Why would you allow this woman to pass away? My second thought was this. What if I was the weak link? You know what I'm saying? If we're all believing for this sort of healing to happen, was I the one who didn't believe the way in which I was supposed to believe? And I'll be honest with you, I struggled. But I'll tell you what, in the months after that, as I began to work through that, I began to realize that things in the Bible just don't happen that way. You know, you have guys like, oh, I don't know, the Apostle Paul, who prays three times that that this thorn in the flesh be removed, and yet God each time looks and says, my grace is sufficient for you. You have him on numerous missionary journeys, suffering horrible beatings and and being near death and being in exile, going through incredible sufferings. And, And this is a man who's doing the Lord's work. There's a little passage in 2 Timothy 4 where Paul says, one of the last things he ever writes, that he left, little line, I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. you got to understand, this is the Apostle Paul. This is the Apostle Paul whose, whose shadow, when it passes over sick people, heals them. Paul, why did you leave Trophimus sick in the city of Miletus? Were you mad at him? Hebrews 11.32 recounts the people of faith, people of renown, who had to go through horrible trials as they did. Some of them experienced great victories. Many of them were boiled in oil, sawed in half, (laughs) went down to dismal ends. Look, y'all, I simply want to submit to you that the reason why we do not think that faith is a matter of its quantity or a matter of its quality even is because it's just not in this Bible. I think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? You do realize that Jesus was not excited about going to the cross. And the night before it happened, he actually asked for God if there might not be another way. Lord, is there any other way in which you could let this cup pass from me? Please don't allow me to go through this. Lord, please heal this woman's body whose husband has given up everything to go into the ministry. Lord, will you please call home my wayward teenage child? Lord, will you please allow me to find work that I can take joy in so that my days are not such a drudgery? Lord, will you please take me out from under this depression and darkness that seems to hang in my conscience day in and day out? But how does Jesus end his prayer? But not my will be done, 
but your will be done. That's the answer. You see, faith is not a matter of quantity, nor is it a matter of quality. Faith is a matter of focus. Faith has to do with what you are looking at at that moment. I love the commentator who said that faith in this sense is like a windshield. You ever thought about that? Windshields are very helpful on nights like tonight. Faith is never meant to be looked at. It's meant to be looked through. It's about the object on the other side. If you're driving down the street tonight and you get preoccupied with your windshield, you're going to have a crash. (laughs) And yet so many Christians get so preoccupied with their windshield of faith. Worrying about the quality of their faith, you know, whether it was enough or whether it was not enough. Losing sight of what faith was supposed to focus them upon, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And His will for my life and what He has determined. So that we can sing with those saints of old and with the hymn writer who said, Whate'er my God ordains is right. It's a tough prayer to pray, but that's the life of faith, is it not? You can imagine three men standing on the side of a frozen river. Behind them is a bear that's chasing them. And they're looking out across that river and they're just frozen at that moment. The first man looks at the river and says, you know what? I've been here plenty of times. I know the thickness of the ice. I've crossed it a million times. I know it will hold me. Let's go. And he scampers across the river safely to the other side. The second man looks and says, I'm not sure it could go either way. On the one hand, that get held up that guy pretty good, but you never can tell. Maybe it's gotten a little weak. Maybe he might have weakened it. I don't know. I'll try it anyway. And he scampers across the river and makes it safely to the other side. The third man is completely doubting and he's looking at the situation in front of him and saying, there's no way. I know the ice is cracked, but I have my choice. I can either drown in a frozen river or get eaten by a bear. I'm crossing the river. And he scampers across and makes it safe to the other side. Now, let's imagine that you get a chance to have a conversation with all three of these men on the other side. And they look at how strange it would sound to their ears If you looked at them and said, I'm so glad that your faith got you through this terrible adventure with this bear. All three men at varying degrees of faith in the ice scamper across just fine. But what would they say to you? Would they not look at you and say, you know, quite frankly, it had absolutely nothing to do with how well we believed. Some of us did it well. Some of us did it poorly. The point of the matter was the thickness of the ice. It was the fact that that was trustworthy. My friends, rather than asking yourself this weekend about the quantity of your faith or the quality of your faith, I want us to consider this question about the object of your faith. Upon what does your faith rest? Because the Bible is far more preoccupied with that than it is with other such questions. I want to finish with a story. A number of years ago, I met a, um, a young lady who, at a church service that I was preaching at over a weekend who had a good friend of hers that was uh, dying. And she, um, she put me on an email list to receive updates from this friend's mother. So th- there's a mother out there who is having to walk her 24-year-old daughter through a very rare neurological disorder. 
that was absolutely fatal to everyone who contracted it. I mean, like one in a million uh, chance to get this thing. And it's a slow and very painful two-year process where the muscles and the brain deteriorate very slowly and eventually the person dies. And so I was on this email list from this girl's mother as she would write these reflections. This particular, um, this particular uh, uh, entry to that uh, was written uh, in June, months after her daughter had finally died. And the mother reads this, says this in her thing. Bear with me as I read this. She says, my, my husband and I were traveling in a rural highway in South Carolina, and we drove past a sign. The building was uninspiring with no cars in the gravel parking lot. My husband and I laughed at the images, the words created. Pizza with bamboo shoots, wontons stuffed with mozzarella, sweet and sour anchovies. Nothing sounded appealing. I have a sneaky idea that it's some kind of marketing ploy. Get the parents in for the Chinese and get the pizza in for the kids. Something for everyone. But I have such conflicted mental taste buds that I cannot appreciate the creativity of the proprietor. This was certainly not what I wanted for lunch, and even Duke's barbecue sounded more digestible than hot and sour pizza. <laughs> she goes on, funny how we have ideas about food combinations, and it's just hard to adjust our mental palate to them. We balk at trying something that offers new flavorful, flavor experiences, like the roadside vegetable stand that offered so many colors of heirloom tomatoes. Beautiful to admire, but I don't want to eat a purple tomato. Tomatoes are red. And I like bacon with eggs, but my husband reminded me that when he studied in Costa Rica, the daily breakfast was eggs with black beans and onions, so he grew to appreciate it. Sometimes we are forced to look at new ways. In June 2007, two years ago this week, we were looking at illness in frighteningly new ways. We were coming to the realization that my, our daughter was seriously ill. She had been tested for everything imaginable and was diagnosed with the worst of the unimaginable. Crutzfeld-Jacob disease, a terminal disease that is extremely rare and affects mostly older people. Even her doctor tried desperately to make some treatable diagnosis fit her symptoms. Nothing made sense. We looked with unbelieving heads and hearts at what had been put before us. It was an awful combination with the bitter taste of death. Stunned with disbelief, we brought her home to wait for a miracle. The words in Scripture held me together. I believed God would cure Megan. I trusted his timing as I claimed his promises. I could wait. Others prayed and together we waited, watched, prayed, and pleaded. And somewhere in the waiting, the focus shifted from what I wanted to what God wanted. I don't know where or how that mysteriously occurred. God did it with grace and love while I kicked and screamed. Specific passages such as Psalm 91 gave me the hope that God would for sure provide his angels to protect Megan, that she would be sheltered from the storm under God's feathers. I thought that meant she would get well. But then she died. And the same verses transformed in meaning. God did raise Megan up on angels' wings and take the pestilence from her. He allowed her to watch him destroy the disease, even as he rescued her. I am disappointed that God did not give Megan a longer life for me. But learning to align with God's will has provided a new level of trust. I did receive his will as I gave up, 
Every night while Megan was waiting for God to rescue her, we prayed, Thy will be done. Did we mean what we said? Did we trust the meaning? If so, there is freedom in this life, and Scripture helps us to understand. But some days the words can be as perplexing as the Chinese house of pizza. They might not make sense, and trust is the only thing to do, especially when you're hungry. Maybe we should have at least looked at the menu. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace perhaps to see things in new ways. Lord Jesus, the new ways of a world that is not, Father, of a world that is not dependent upon our happiness and our ease to make it make sense. Lord Jesus, we don't want to belittle suffering, but in the same way, we don't want to lose the fact that you are a God who works in mysterious ways. And to believe that you are doing the right thing is oftentimes hard. And so would you allow us maybe this weekend to see you in fresh ways? Not necessarily our faith, which wavers as it does, but to see that because our faith is in you, it is certain, not because we waver on it. And if you would give us that encouragement, maybe this weekend might be profound. Maybe some of us might even believe for the first time. Would you do that? For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Closing hymn is number 528. My faith lifts up to thee the four stands.